We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's up, guys? Just a couple of quick notes before I get to my interview with IM Casa Corley. Number one is we had some technical issues and the software crashed about at the end of our first interview. And somehow it only saved about the first 25 minutes. So luckily, Casa was gracious enough to rejoin me. And he was just as informative and entertaining in the second half of the interview as the first. But if my voice sounds a little bit different, it's because I've been fighting a cold and I'm finally recovering. And when we recorded the second half 10 days later, uh, I was on on the road to recovery. And But luckily, it was just as good as the first one. Now, a couple other things. Number one, I finally recorded a YouTube video summarizing the survey results. Thanks to those of you who participated in the listener survey a few months back. I just wanted to respond to some common feedback I get. I shared the data about listeners and demographics and stuff like that. So it's a bit into the weeds of what goes into making this podcast. So if that's something that interests you, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com and check out the YouTube video. If it's not, if it doesn't interest you, just ignore it. That's why I didn't put it on the podcast feed. Last but not least, we're doing a live event 
in Nashville, Tennessee for elementary nationals. So I just wanted to remind you all, if you're going to be there, you better holler at me. You better come attend um, or at least drop me a line. Maybe we'll do a meetup or something. Grab a drink or two. So if you're a parent or a coach attending nationals, let me know. My guests are the executive director of the USCF and the uh, Carol Meyer, along with the president of the USCF, Michael Hoffpower, in a joint interview. And then we've got two legendary chess coaches joining us, Jay Stallings, who you guys may know from a prior visit, and Sunil Wiramantri, FM Sunil Wiramantri, who is coached the legendary program over at Hunter and written, he wrote a great chess book decades ago, and then he just came out with another one that's awesome. So we're going to be talking about that. And of course, he's the stepdad of a certain Hikaru Nakamura. So I'm excited to talk to Sunil. And last but definitely not least, Grandmaster Irina Crush, seven-time U.S. Women's Chess Champion in the trenches. We're playing another U.S. Women's Chess Championship as I record this. So super excited for all that. The plan is to release them on the podcast feed too, if the equipment cooperates and I correctly record them. Um, so they'll be coming out sometime in May, but if you're going to be there, you should try to come by and ask some questions, check it out, say hi, all that stuff. Okay. Enough jibber jabber On to my interview with Casa. Catch you guys later. Hello everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Perpetual Chess. My guest this week is another talented young chess player, YouTube streamer, Duke graduate, and most importantly, international master, Casa Corley. Thanks for joining us this week. Hey, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Casa, I have the way it works with guests on this show is I have a big, long list of potential guests, and sometimes I have a bunch of people lined up, and I know who it's going to be, and sometimes I don't, and then I get out the list and see what seems timely. And the way that I ended up reaching out to you is I saw that you were playing it down in Charlotte um, with former guests of the show and YouTube, more importantly, YouTube star, John Bartholomew. And that made me think about seeing what's going on with you in your chess and how, how it's because I know you had a pretty good showing down there, you didn't manage to get a norm. But I just thought we'd like to hear your story. So first, let's get the trip report. How did that tournament treat you, Casa? Um, I enjoyed it. I mean, I always uh, enjoy going down uh, to Charlotte um, uh, to see my good friend Peter Giannatos, who actually uh, runs uh, the Charlotte Chess Center. Um, I have a history with him and uh, uh, a few other individuals at the center, including uh, uh, Dominique. Uh, so shout out to Dominique. Um, and uh, essentially, we were actually, myself, uh, Peter, Dominique, and John, all in uh, London at the London Chess Classic. And I want to say it was 20, 2015 or 2016. Um, and so uh, and we were all sort of hanging out during the tournament and um, so, uh, we go back till, to then and that's, you know, why, you know, rooming and stuff isn't a, a problem now because we know each other pretty well. Yeah. They're doing amazing work down there. And Peter also, I saw was doubling as your cameraman for the little YouTube videos that you were throwing up. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't been so active on YouTube the past four months and I was just thinking like, why not like, you know, just get like a very quick video out there. Um, it's pretty much pretty low lift work and, uh, it's something that I can laugh on like 10 years from now. Like a lot of times people are like, Oh, you know, 
what are you doing the videos for and blah, blah, blah. And like, you should do this and you should do that. And it's like, well, first of all, like I'm doing it sort of for myself. So just some as sort of like to create some sort of uh, legacy and experience and memories around what's happening now. Yeah. And memories can be fickle things. So it's good to record how you felt at that moment, because looking back, you might have an entirely different feeling uh, about a given tournament. Yeah, definitely. Um, but mostly good feelings in, in Charlotte. I mean, I only lost one game um, uh, out of from nine, which is uh, I think I'd actually never done before in a tournament because normally I'm a pretty um, you know vo- more volatile player. I, I don't I don't accept draws, for instance. So um, like at all? Yeah, like like at all. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. That's kind of like a Jonathan Korblas school of chess sort of thing. He doesn't resign. You don't accept draws. That well, I just have such a you know a disdain for the draw. I mean, I really think that. Um, I mean, if, if you're gonna you know call chess a sport, and I mean, I actually I'm sort of like in the minority camp where I actually don't believe it's a sport. Um, but if you want to call chess a sport, then it has to have uh, you have to have more sporting engagements every time. And I think you know. I think, you know, the draw agreement, I mean, I mean, people have spoken on, on this ad nauseum, but it just diminishes the, the quality of the image and all that stuff of chess. And I actually think in the long run, when you're, when you're, if you are sort of conditioned um, to not actually offer draws, um, and don't get me wrong, I do accept draw, I have accept draws, but in positions that are like relatively dead, um, if, if you're not conditioned that way, then I think you actually are become a better player because you you just sort of have this psychological edge where you're going to play through everything. And you might suffer some, some adversity, some losses here and there, but I think you're tougher for it. That's interesting. So what's your threshold? If it's like a rook and three pawns versus rook and three pawns on the same side, are you, are you taking a draw or are you fighting on? Oh, I mean, that's, I, would, I would call that a dead draw position. I mean, like there's like... If, if there's no way to sort of unbalance it and if they're on the same side, that's definitely like, that's just a, that's just a draw. Like, so I'm not going to play out something that's dead, but if there's really any sort of imbalance, uh, material hope, um, we're going to play some moves just so, you know, the opponent has to sort of prove it. Um, but I, I wouldn't sort of, I wouldn't say it's in the same realm as sort of like the core blood playing till checkmate type thing. That's, that's sort of, I would say a, a little bit different. I, I'm talking about really practically speaking, almost a you know a Carlson-esque approach that I think you sort of learn that you know people get really tired over time and uh, and if you um, uh, you know just play things out, you know good things tend to happen. And um, I'm always of the belief that you know I'm more athletic than my opponent uh, and have more more energy because you know uh, I have a sports background. So. Um, I just feel like if I if, if if that's actually the case, I ought to play to those advantages uh, as much as I can. So, Casa, the draw stuff is interesting, but I also have to want to hear you unpack more about why you think that chess isn't a sport because people are always interested in that topic. And like you say, it does seem like a minority view amongst chess fans. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think um, I understand that it's it is a minority view, and that you know chess players are you know often critical of anyone that will sort of uh, endanger their hollowed ground. But, uh, I've just, over the years, I mean, I've had the privilege to play, you know, like what I would consider like more the real sports, uh, ba- uh in high school, I was a three sport athlete, uh, basketball, soccer, and track. 
Um, but basketball's always been my main sport. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, it's, it's why I decided to go to Duke just to be around a basketball culture. Um, and, uh, I just chess, I think chess is a game with sporting qualities. Um, but I've seen too many chess players over the years that, you know, they don't, they don't have their, their athleticism, so, so to speak, doesn't translate off the board in any type of way. Um, and so I think, I mean, I, and I've also just seen really, you know, people, chess players that aren't particularly in shape. Um, and so I think you could be a great chess player and, uh, maybe, maybe not the best in the world, but you can be a really great chess player and not necessarily be physically fit. Um, and that's just not the, that's not even close to the resembling the case in like basketball or soccer or football, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think, I, I just think it doesn't necessarily hold water. Uh, uh, and I, I think chess in the Olympics, for instance, is like not something that makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm on the record as being agnostic about this topic. But I mean, one thing I will say is a couple things that are considered sports like golf or table tennis or whatever, they're not necessarily, you know, you don't have to be in peak physical shape for that either. And the other thing is, of course, that as you sort of alluded to, the top players these days are becoming more and more physically fit and you know the the top guests that i've had on like hikaru's running many marathons and of course magnus is legendary for you know playing basketball or soccer basically on every off day so it's moving in that direction although i get that that doesn't change the classification of chess itself sure and and i think another thing that's important to emphasize is uh you know in the other sports you cited whether it's ping pong or uh or uh golf um, there is some sort of uh, physical demonstration in the actual uh, in the in the sport that's you know being carried out, right? So that the physical demonst- demonstration when you're playing chess is like moving the pieces is, is pretty much the gist of it, and then it's more of a there. There's more of a there's other physical tolls, but it, it's just not it's not the same. You're not you're it's not the active. It's just it's just not the same to me. Um, yeah, and. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I think I'll never change on that. I think if I didn't play, you know, basketball, soccer, run, you know, then then I you know would be more inclined to hold chess so dearly as this is this uh, as a sport. But um, you know, being around other games have you know has given me this priv- uh, diversity of perspective. Nice. Yeah. And having seen your YouTube video with uh, Outray Chess, as I mentioned to you offline, where you where you showed off a little bit on the basketball court, I can I can as a, a YouTube observer vouch for your abilities a little bit. It looked like you've uh, you're, you're not just you're not all talk. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, chess and basketball have been both in my life since I was five. And um, I sort of applied myself in the same way. Um, it wasn't like one necessarily took um, precedent over the other. And that's actually, you know, one could say, well, maybe that's why, you know, uh, I'm not a grandmaster yet or, or something like that. Or I didn't become, you know, even a better basketball player. But um, I'm, I'm thankful for the I'm thankful that I was exposed and, you know, engaged in different activities and had this diversity of experiences because, um I think just eventually the long one leads to a richer life. 
Yeah, I agree. I know that some people like to focus more on chess. That's my personal leaning as well, as is evidenced by the the wide breadth of topics we discuss on this podcast, much to a few people's dismay, but <laughs> it is what it is. But I do want to get back to chess right now, Casa. So why don't you give us like the, the 10,000 foot view of what's going on with, with your chess game? I mean, you play this... Sh- the Charlotte chess tournament. Um, you, you've spoken in interviews in the past about your goal of becoming a grandmaster. Are you still like pushing hard for that right now? Or are you kind of um, uh, laying back at this moment? So it's definitely still my goal. Um, uh, and it, it always will be my goal. Um, uh, currently uh, I'm, uh, I'm working a job professionally. Um, so uh, chess uh, definitely has taken a backseat in terms of the just the opportunity to play. Um, uh, chess is still sort of it, it's like a drug to me. It's 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 a very very addictive, and I'm still very passionate about it. So I'm looking at chess every day. Um, I think you can learn a lot about uh, someone based on like you know their top five, top ten sites that they look at. And if you ask me, like, oh, what are the you know five top five, top ten? websites that i'm browsing or that my you know my history will google chrome will tell me i'm looking at probably like half of those are uh sites with the word chess in it right (laughs) um so that really says something even now um where i just i can't even whenever whenever i'm on a computer i just can't help it but go to uh, a prominent chess site and play through some games and you know just see what's going on because it's it's just been that strong of a passion um but, uh, you know, right now, I mean, and it's still, I'm, I still have this goal of becoming a GM, you know, you know, soon or, you know, relatively soon. I don't want to wait, you know, forever until I'm like 35 to get it done. Cause I do, I mean, every year it's just, it becomes harder, I think. And you're uh, what, 25 now? Is that right? I'm 24. I'll be 25, uh, next month. I'm still clean to 24. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel old, uh. It's all good, the time. good to be 24. Um, yeah. So, um, so what are, what are you doing for work right now? Yeah, so I work at uh, Code Academy. Um, it's a, a a tech startup, you could say, that um, helps teach people how to code. Um, um, I work on the product team there. Um, uh, essentially, uh, it's it's my been it's actually been my first uh, like full time uh, professional job. Uh, so it's been a really interesting experience, um, being in the, um, the professional world. Um, and yeah, I mean, chess is still, is, I, just back to that other question, like chess is still really at the forefront for me. And every, most of the vacations I take, it's a chess tournament. It's not a real vacation. And then I actually come back, uh, to work and I'm just as weary as I was before I left because chess is such a grind. Yeah. Probably more weary. Um, yeah. And, you know, for the people that are like, see, it is a sport, like, you know, that touche, that's at least <laughs> there's an argument there. Yeah. Well, um, you have travel too. Like, I mean, it's only New, New York to Charlotte. You live in New York? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, I knew you were from there. Um, New York to Charlotte isn't like a huge flight, but still you feel it when you, when you flew the day before and yeah, definitely it doesn't feel like you unwound if you were grinding chess all weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's serious. So, um, yeah, I, I just I'm still just trying to get better. I always feel like the last tournament I played, I, I always feel like the best player I've been is the one in the current moment because I've learned so much from every tournament, and you just go back to the drawing board and make some little adjustments. 
And it, and it was really a big deal for me to, to play and it, just this last event and like only lose one game that felt really good. Uh, so, um, I'm still working on it in my spare time and, um, you know, I'm definitely going to continue to play tournaments, uh, and, uh, you know, slowly but surely get there, but it's going to be a more gradual process than I thought. And that's, that's sort of what I've learned over the, the past few years, getting a little bit more mature and understanding that is I made a choice to go to, to college. I made a choice to work in the, you know, quote unquote real world. And I made a choice not to, you know, invest everything in chess because theoretically, uh, one could consider, you know, investing everything in chess and, you know, being like a 2650 grandmaster and still, you know, really, really struggling in the whole grand scheme of uh, the chess world economically. So um, I just I just made a different I, I had a different path. And so I have to understand that the, the path to my goals will also be uh, uh, a little bit more drawn out. Yeah. I mean, we've had so many chess professionals of different stripes on, on this show and one thing that's struck me is, I, first of all, big picture, I think things are better than ever for chess professionals. I think that's, um, to me, that's fairly unequivocal. But if you're not in the top, say, 40, 50 in the world, it isn't that big a difference if you're like 2650 FIDE versus 2400 FIDE because your career is going to be based around um, doing some sort of chess education or chess presentation uh, for the you know the bill paying aspect of your work, and then fitting in the work on your own game uh, around the margins. So whether you do that with teaching chess itself or in another field, as you're doing, you know, utilizing your degree, um, is not the you know just there's obviously lots of personal preference and life goals that come into making that decision. Yeah, and um, and I realized that like pretty much towards the end of college. Um, I actually took some time after school. Uh, uh, I graduated in 2015, and I was basically playing chess for about a year or so. And that's actually when I was around my peak rating. It was like 24, 30-ish. Um, and, uh, and I saw these amazing players at like, tournaments like the Reykjavik Open and the London Classic. And it's, it's like, you know, I, I talked to some GMs. I was like, what are they doing? And it's like, it's a real, it's a hustle. It's a real, um, you have to be, I mean, you you have the love for the game, so it's not like it's the worst thing in the world. I mean, I mean, you're doing this thing that you love, and you're really uh, driven towards it. The one thing that I think about a lot is, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but going back to thinking about uh, chess players as athletes, um, you like if you're an NBA player and your career is probably done around like mid 30s, late mid to late 30s, it's like, what do I do next? And, and at least in, you know, basketball, you might say I have like a ton of money saved up and, you know, I have media opportunities and all this thing. Uh, if you're a chess player and you're sort of in the tail end of your career and it might be a, around that similar age and then you're like, what do I do next? I think it's actually a much harder question to answer. And so I was always like I started to think like, well, um, I don't really want to. Have, have, have had to invested all of that in this one entity and then basically have no no idea or no nowhere else to turn that was like pretty clear for me right uh, so with regard to your current work are are you a coder yourself no um, I actually had no 
coding experience uh, before joining. Um, I have a little bit now, but nothing to to you know write home about. Um, my role is basically uh, working with the product team to help uh, ha- uh, implement new features and uh, support our platform, that sort of thing. So. Um, uh, don't need to be an engineer to, to be an effective uh, employee. Okay. And uh, you enjoying it so far? Yeah. I mean, it's been a really interesting experience. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for it uh, just to get the exposure and to, um, it, with it particularly with an industry that's like, you know, as far as buzzwords and being relevant is concerned, like technology and startups are like, that's it. So um, it's just been a really eye opening uh, exposure um, to you know really what I think the 21st century may very well be about as far as tech enabled jobs and having some coding skills and you know all those things and I and um, yeah it's I'm just really I've been really grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good good topic to have covered on your resume. Mm-hmm. Um. So getting back to chess, so you're, um, you're from New York, but you're also a Danish citizen, correct? Yeah. Uh, my dad was, uh, was born in Denmark and, um, uh, I've had pretty much dual citizenship as a result all my life. And, uh, you're part of the fabled product of the fabled Dalton chess program. Um, you know, Josh Waitzkin being the most famous alumni, but, uh, a rich history, of uh, successful chess players. So what was it like growing up and, you know, playing in a program like that? It's actually funny you mentioned that because my connection to the, uh, the, the Dalton chess program is, is, is probably, probably not as, uh, not as, you know, clearly defined as you'd, you'd expect because, um, I, uh, Dalton is a K to 12, uh, private institution. And, um, I came to the school in eighth grade. And their program uh, is featured prominently K to five. Okay. So there wasn't any, um, uh, at least while I was there, infrastructure to uh, support, um, you know, high school, uh, high school age uh, players. Um, so uh, I, I was at Dalton, you know, for the academics. I, I was at, I was, uh, I was in this program called Prep for Prep um, that helps minorities uh, get into uh, independent schools in the city. Um, uh, after like doing intense prepper, prepper, preparatory work, uh, for, uh, for a couple years. And by virtue of being in prepper prep, I got to Dalton and, um, it wasn't chess related at all. It just so happened that there was a chess culture in the lower school. Oh, that's interesting. That would have never crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so were there any other chess players around your age? Like, um, you know, strong young chess players? No, I mean, there was, uh, in, in my year, um, I, with, as far as Dalton is concerned, I was class of 2011, um, there. And, uh, uh, in my year, there was, uh, uh, a player that was pretty, pretty decent, like when, in like K1, K2, K3. Um, but, uh, when I was there, he, he, he hadn't, he'd sort of, his chess career had dropped off. And I think his peak rating was like 1700. Okay. Um, so I was pretty much still low there. Okay, but you were, I mean, you were pushing pretty hard, right? That explains, because I read in an interview where you said you'd never had a coach, uh, and I, I was surprised because I figured, you know, with my not knowing all the details and the outsider view, I thought, well, that's surprising since you you were at Dalton. Um, so the mystery is solved. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break from our interview to tell you about an awesome opportunity to work in the chess world. So you may have heard my interview with Adam Weisbarth of Silver Knights Enrichment a few weeks back. They're doing awesome work promoting chess in the D.C. area, exposing lots of kids to the game and helping them get better. And the good news is that they're hiring. They're looking for a program manager to be based in D.C. It's a full-time salaried position with benefits where you can work in chess education management. So the primary responsibilities of the job would be for organizing and managing chess programs at groups of schools. Um, It's office-based, although you would also be visiting some schools. So if you're interested in this job, there's a couple ways you could apply. You could go to www.indeed.com and search for Silver Knights Enrichment, or you could just send an email to jobs at skenrichment.com. That's jobs at skenrichment.com. And I'll also put a link to the job description in the, the description of this show. So as someone who's been in the chess world for a long time, I can tell you that opportunities to work like this with a salaried position don't come along that often. So if this sounds like something that you think you'd be a good fit for, you should drop them a line. Okay, back to the interview. And we actually got a question and some intel from a supporter of the podcast, Kare Christensen, who says, if not already mentioned by Kasa himself, he has had a spell of some years in Denmark where he played not only in the Danish team championship and some tournaments, but also in the individual Danish championship and actually did quite well. One obvious question is how is the Danish or European uh, chess different uh, from the US? And what did he think in general about chess life in Denmark? Yeah, so I guess a good place to sort of start would be why I'm in uh, Denmark so often. Um, uh, uh, I have a lot of family there. My uh, I'm a dual citizen of uh, Denmark and the U.S. And um, I actually spent my whole junior year uh, in a study abroad program in uh, in Copenhagen, which gave me a real opportunity to just be there, um, living on my own, but also have uh, grandparents and family there. Um, so it's like a really transformative experience. I'd been going to Denmark every year since I was a kid, um, but it was a totally different thing, like coming into your own as an adult um, or as an adolescent, um, becoming an adult. So uh, as far as the chess is concerned, uh, when I actually uh, uh, was there over the course of the year, I joined a club um, called the uh, uh Chess or uh, O-B-R-O. Um, actually, the first O has a line through it. It's a Danish vowel, but neither here nor there. Um, basically, I, I played for a Danish club. I got um, I got involved in some of the, the chess scene there. Um, and yeah, it was just an opportunity to, to get something very different than what I was used to in uh, American chess. Now, I mean, this is no surprise to, uh, to people that um, have probably played in Europe before, um, but one of the things that immediately stands out is you don't have to bring your uh, your pieces and clocks and stuff to, to, to events anymore when you're playing in Europe. That stuff's already provided. Um, I'm sure I'm not the that's not the original thing to say, but it is something you just notice. You're like, oh my gosh, they have stuff here. Right. Uh, always gets you um, when these open tournaments. You sort of just have to scrap yourself. Yeah. Um, uh, that uh, you can also point out like the. The prizes are usually less than the American Opens, um, but uh, but they don't uh, they don't share prizes, um, which is something that uh, they do in the U.S. Where if there's like a five way split, they're actually going to split it, 
in, uh, in many European uh, countries, they actually just have tie breaks. Um, as far as like the chess, the chess scene is concerned, um, or maybe even chess culture, I would say that, um, I found, I found European chess to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more correct, if you will. Um, and by correct, I think just a little bit more, uh, maybe the word is classical, not quite, uh, uh, not quite as like reckless, I would say. I'd say in American tournaments, um, particularly in the opens, uh, you know, there's a lot of games that maybe aren't as high quality because you're playing multiple games a day and, um, and essentially I think the culture in the, in the U S is like very much attacking style. Um, and in uh, Europe, you're playing a lot of, a lot of players that are like, not going to like go for your throat, or at least in Denmark, this was the case. There weren't anyone that was like super, super aggressive, but they were going to play more measured. And, um, uh, I mean, I actually quite like that approach, uh, because, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a positional player, so it's something I enjoyed, but I always found like, you know, the Germanys, the Denmarks, the, these Western European, uh, chess countries, they, they, they're not as sort of brazen with like Sicilians everywhere. Like you might expect, um, Sicilians and Grunfelds, like you might expect from uh, American. Huh. That's interesting. And of course people could draw their own, you know, conclusions about the broader implications or if there are any about like what it says about a culture in general, in general, if one country is approaching chess with sort of reckless abandon and an emphasis on, you know, cash prizes and the other, you know, you just play a game a day and you relax and you appreciate the beauty of the game. And I've only played a little bit in Europe, but that's what you say definitely rings true from my experience. Yeah. I mean, I I think I've always had this, uh, I've had many of these discussions about, you know, what, 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 what's your impression of the chess culture here in the U S and I, I'd say it's gotten a lot better just because more people are playing chess. So, um, you know, if more people are playing and the, the internet, it becomes this great equalizer. Um, uh, it sort of evens the playing field, but I, but you still tend to notice, uh, a much more difficult adjustment for, uh, for youth players in the U S that have been in the scholastic scene for uh, a little bit longer than they should. And, you know, having this very narrow toolkit where they sort of sack, sack mate, and then all of a sudden that formula isn't really working anymore. So, uh, and I think, I think if you've like grew up in like, uh, you know, around like European chess culture, I was saying, I mean, it's not even specifically European, but uh, a non-American chess culture might be easier to grow out of this almost uh, initially primitive uh, type of chess. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's, it's an interesting difference for sure. Um, So do you feel like it helped your chess necessarily playing there? Um, Well, I I definitely uh, had a a pretty big leap while I was there. I think it was, it was more, more than, more than anything else, just an opportunity to play a little bit more, have a constant diet of chess while in college. I mean, when you're studying abroad, you're, uh, it's not as rigorous as your studies back at your actual uh, school. Or, or it definitely wasn't uh, the same level of work at, that it was. I did at Duke University, so I had a little bit more time to, you know, really, really aggressively um, pursue chess. Um, so uh, when I had breaks, uh, I, I played for Saturday once, and I basically just hung around like the Danish uh, Danish club, the Danish league, and. Most people actually that go to college, they get worse at chess. 
I actually uh, got significantly better. And it, it's probably, uh, it has a lot to do with sort of my obsession uh, with getting better um, at the time. Like it was definitely like a priority to me, even when it maybe shouldn't always have been. But, uh, but also was just uh, the, the opportunity before me was really amazing to just be within like, you know, uh, you know, a few miles distance of like, uh, you know, chess opportunities, whereas, um, you know, playing FIDE rated games in particular in, uh, in the U S can, it's changed considerably, but I always called any FIDE rated tournament was like pretty much an a thousand dollar trip. And I couldn't really afford that, um, uh, you know, all the time. I, so I played maybe, a, you know, four or five, six tournaments a year. Um, whereas, uh, when I was in Denmark, if I really wanted to, I could play, something pretty much every month yeah and they do keep it um less expensive and for listeners who don't know the first saturday tournament that casa alluded to is these legendary uh fide rated norm based tournaments in budapest that when i was a kid if you wanted to make a norm you almost there were so few opportunities in the united states that you almost had to go there it was kind of like a rite of passage and some some players would go and live in that area and just travel to different tournaments now thanks in no small part to of course rex Sinkfeld and also uh your buddy in charlotte peter giannatos they're they're doing a great job um <clears throat> supporting events here in the u.s and it's a bit more of a level playing field for norm chasing but those tournaments i mean they're they're steeped in history i would have i would love to have had a chance to get my ass kicked in one of those sometime yeah i mean it's uh it's definitely uh many 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 title players have, have gone there to uh, achieve something um i definitely did not have my best tournament when i was there but um the experience was it was just interesting just to see what that was like um if i if i go back to denmark for a second i think the last you know thing to note before i guess closing the book there would be that um i actually switched federations um uh uh, pretty much a year or so after I got back from uh, Denmark and was a senior at Duke, uh, uh, it became uh, pretty clear that that'd be a great opportunity for me because uh, while I was in Copenhagen, I won this tournament called the Candidate Class. And basically, it's whoever wins that tournament has a spot in the Danish Championship. Um, so, But I had to switch federations to be able to compete in it. Um, and so it just made a lot of sense to switch federations, compete in the Danish championship. Um, and, you know, long term, if I, you know, did become a, a much a stronger player, maybe one day having an opportunity to play for the, uh, the Olympiad. So, yeah. um, which is something that with the U S, um, was not, was not going to be, was pretty much going to be out of the question, um, given the strength of the U S team today. Now the, the Danish team is no, you know, no joke either, but. At least twenty five hundred seems uh, more feasible than twenty seven hundred feet day. Right. Point. Yeah, I did check your ranking on the Danish feet uh, feet day Danish top players list, and I was surprised. I think you were in the twenties. Um, yeah, it's actually. I was. I was probably in like the teens, uh, like very close to outside the top ten um, when I uh, right after I graduated from college because. Uh, I was, uh, my peak, I think was like 2430, I want to say. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I was just, after I came back from Denmark, I was in really a great, uh, chess form and, uh, I actually got my three IM norms in succession. Um, I played in the, 
uh, I think it was the New York International and then the Philly International and then the World Open and just got three norms in a row like that. Um, and my FIDE rating was already 2,400. So I just need, it was strange. I only had one norm, but a FIDE rating of 2,400 because I played a bunch of five and six round uh, events in uh, in Copenhagen, uh, strangely enough, that didn't didn't uh, obviously give me a norm op- opportunity because you need nine rounds. So when you were on a run like that, did you did something feel different? Did you feel like you were in the zone? Um, I, I would just say it was really you know when you have when you get to play a lot, um, you you start to uh, you know you start to see what works and what doesn't, and you just get this really amazing repetition, um, and then uh, you know muscle memory and all these types of things that are um, uh, you know really. Uh, almost like sporting uh, analogies or sporting terms come to, come to you quite naturally. So um, my whole thing is I always thought I had, I always thought I, always thought I had really uh, great talent and that the opportunities before me to play were the main obstacle in my development. Um, now, I mean, I've never had a coach. Um, and so some are like, oh, well, you need a coach um, to really get to that point. And I thought a coach gets you to the, uh, to the solution, you know, faster than other you otherwise uh, could get there yourself, probably. But um, more than anything else, um, you know, playing is is games really has been uh, my greatest teacher because you you constantly making adjustments. Yeah, and in our lost tapes and our in our interview that wasn't recorded, you you spoke at length about um, how critically you sort of approach chess. So you didn't have a coach, but. <clears throat> that made you more inclined to ask questions that other people might not ask, or at least to dig for answers. Because if you have a coach and there's something you don't understand, you can ask them, but you were, you were saying you didn't, you didn't have that luxury. Sure. Uh, I mean, I could totally uh, dive into that methodology for a second. Um, basically uh, I didn't even have a database um, until like uh, high school and uh, my website of choice uh, was chessgames.com. Um, basically, uh, they had this uh, a game of the day, an opening of the day, and a player of the day. And um, I would look at all of those things. Um, and then they also had this opening explorer. And uh, what I would do is I would play. I, I would just look up openings that were relevant to me that I wanted to learn. And I would play over hundreds of thousands of games in the openings explorer. Now, the, the key thing is I actually wasn't like a premium member. Um, looking back on it, being a premium member didn't even cost that much uh, for me now. But uh, back then, it seemed like uh, money that, you know, as a kid, I didn't really want to spend. Or uh, So essentially, uh, you, you got sort of locked out of the opening explorer after like a certain amount of moves. It was usually like 8 or 12 or 10. Um, but I found sort of like a workaround where you can, if you actually – uh, look at one of the games um, and you scroll to the bottom, there's this thing called that says find similar games and you're able to look at all the relevant games played in, in the line that, uh, similar to that game. And so it was this sort of backdoor workaround where I could actually get all the games that I actually needed to learn the opening properly. And I would do this like every day pretty much. Like, um, like I would literally flip through games with like, a, you know, you look at your arrow keys, I just be hitting the right arrow key um, uh, maybe a couple hours a day, just looking at games, looking at games, and really getting a sense of, you know, what were the strong players doing? What weren't they doing? And 
and and the the key thing was actually figuring out like why weren't they doing these things? Because I had all these top level games look at, that I was looking at from all the top level tournaments. They have a, a tournaments tab on the left hand side of uh, chessgames.com, and uh, yeah, it's all the relevant uh, tournaments, you know. And it was sort of it's just weird sort of figuring that out. Um, there's one time in particular, um, I've actually sort of started a chess series uh, last year about this called Chess Secrets You Wish You Knew. And I remember looking at this game when I was in middle school. Uh, I was playing a tournament. I was getting up and walking around. And there was this guy playing G6, like pawn G6, in a Sicilian. Um, and it just made no sense to me. He was, it was, he was playing like a Shevenengen type structure. And I was like, why is he pushing a pawn near the king? And, you know, after... Uh, after uh, playing through uh, other Sicilian games, I started to notice this being a trend. And uh, it, it sort of dawned on me, huh, maybe this G G6 move is a prophylactic move. Maybe the king doesn't necessarily have to castle kingside. Maybe there's maneuvers where the bishop goes to G7. Um, I actually did a video about the rookie 8 bishop F8 maneuver. And so you sort of like, you see something long enough, you start to sort of rationalize the decision. And that was a lot of the learning process for me is, Seeing something, not quite understanding it, trying to figure it out, and you know, losing and and learning and, and that sort of iterative process. Yeah, and for, so Casa's talking about his YouTube channel, which you guys should definitely check out. Um, so, did you have any sort of? I know we discussed uh, in our other interview that you, although you went to Dalton, which has a fabled chess tradition, by the time you got there, there weren't. Um, you were older than the general chess program uh, than the age that the program targeted. So you didn't have many uh, peers, chess peers at Dalton. Did you have any other peers around New York city that you could talk chess with and study with? Yeah, actually um, I had, uh, uh, I definitely had a few people that I, uh, I played chess with uh, um, that were my age growing up. Um, yeah. Dal the Dalton team, uh, like, like you noted was uh was really like limited to like elementary school primarily. And then there was a few middle school types. But by the time I got there, I got to talk in eighth grade. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's really, I had, there was one guy in my grade that was a chess player and he was like 1600. So it definitely sort of tailed off. Um, but I had, I had some, uh, some chess peers, definitely. Um, a friend of mine, Nitai uh, Levy, uh, he actually went to Bronx science and was, Still very passionate about ch uh, chess at the time. Um, he was about uh, expert level player at the time. Now he's uh, about twenty two hundred. Um, uh, uh, Raven Sturt. Um, he still plays chess. Um, he's an IM now as well. Um, we sort of fallen out of touch, um, but uh, you know, in high school uh, we were, you know, we were at the Marshall like almost every weekend, just playing tournaments, going over our games, uh, talking about things. Um, it did see, it did sometimes seem sort of like, uh, isolated, I guess the, the development did because, um, you know, you want to get better, but you also don't want to like exchange all these trade secrets essentially that right. you're trying to, you know, work on. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, most of the, the learning again, most of the learning and communication happened in, in the, in the games in the, in, in the actual action. Um, and that, again, I, I cannot emphasize enough how valuable that, that those experiences have been because 
for me, um, chess always had this amazing ability to give me profound joy and profound pain. So um, every game, especially at that time, looking back on it, um, I, I just I just poured so much of myself into it, and um, and I took I took the results. Um, I received the results as they were. So if it was a win, I was like the happiest guy in the world. And if it was a loss, I sometimes did question like, why is I doing all this? Was it even worth it? Like, what's the point, you know? Um, and, you know, you have these these just amazing moments uh, when you're playing chess where it, it, it can do that to you um, like a drug, frankly. Um, I, I, I like to consider uh, chess to be one of, uh, like has very uh, many um, sort of addictive drug-like qualities. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think... I think every listener will be able to relate to that. I definitely can. And it's funny. I, um, now I'm, I'm 41 and I have kids and I used to be fiercely competitive when I played. Um, and now when I play a game, I can still get to that sort of feeling of heightened awareness um, and feeling of uh, disproportionate importance of uh, what happens in one game. But what I've noticed has changed as I've gotten older and gotten a little more perspective is the feeling goes away faster. So I still have the same intensity and the same, like, especially same, uh, uh, I'm still really bothered when I lose, especially if it's uh, due to something that I feel like I, I had some control over. Uh, but at least I'm able to recover more quickly um, with the benefit of some maturity. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm actually probably going to write about this one day because it's really funny if you're playing like uh, if you're playing Blitz particularly, like if you're playing like Blitz in the in a park or something like that. Um, and, you know, you might have there might be these other things that you would notice if you weren't be just totally consumed by the game. Like whenever I, I play Blitz for like several hours, you know, I'm just like in this zone. You're just sort of like you just you're almost like you're almost not in your body totally and then when you're done you have these you have these these sensations come back into you that you sort of forgot like oh i actually have to use the bathroom or, right oh i'm hungry i haven't eaten in six hours like and it just it's amazing how all this sort of like like once you like sort of snap out of the trance life becomes clarifying again um uh oh honestly it's almost like post-coital like it's just <laughs> just something comes back to you that you did not have before. And that's like the beauty in it to be so engrossed, um, but also, you know, a curse, um, more beauty though, but yeah, mostly good. Um, one, one thing I actually would also note is, uh, you know, we, we about this winning and losing. Um, I, I came to this sort of realization or epiphany, um, and it really sort of helped to put things in perspective for me. And that's like, if you're, you know, a player that's been playing for a while um, and, you know, has a, a pretty decent experience with the game, it's very likely you win more games than you lose. Um, so uh, in my case, I don't know what it is, but in probably like 70, 80% of the time, I'm winning the games that I'm playing um, or, or definitely not losing them. Um, and what that means is actually is that eight seventy percent of the time or eighty percent of the time i'm inflicting this pain or questioning on someone else and only receiving it twenty percent of the time how humbling is that right that, like, 
you you inflict that sort of you know they're they're in it and probably have the same sort of feelings and values you do as well how crazy is that you you get that you you get that feeling so much less than you uh, you dish it out I, I just think it's a in, incredibly humbling thing to recognize yeah and in that sense in terms of like the emotional impact <clears throat> Excuse me, I guess it would be a negative sum game because winning never feels as good as losing and someone's going to lose for the most part. So the the net suffering is always negative in a, in a given chess game, but but nevertheless it's it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, something about coming just you just want to come back and uh that's the other thing is there's always this there's always uh you why do you come back? Why do people come back? They come back because of the you know, the potential energy behind, you know, what it can give you, you know, they come back because that feeling really does mean something powerful. Yeah. And I, uh, I mentioned this last week's guest, uh, Dan Lucas m- mentioned that I wrote one of these, uh, best move columns for, for chess life, uh, several months ago, probably six months ago. But, but I mentioned that, you know, in this age of distraction with cell phones and all that stuff, like, the fact that I have to turn my phone off when I play chess, like a tournament game, to me, that's like a huge boon. Like, it's like, all right, finally, an excuse to like get this thing away from me and like, you know, form longer thoughts than I do when I'm just like checking Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. And an opportunity to be present. Yeah, exactly. To hear, to hear your breathing and other people's breathing to, Sometimes, unfortunately, smell unpleasant smells. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although uh, that's gotten better with chess too, I think. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but yet to be totally engrossed. Um, yeah, it's, it's something else. Yeah. So, so Casa, you've mentioned uh, in previous interviews, um, like uh, I read an interview that you did with Daim Shabazz on chess drum, and you know your long term goal. You've been vocal is to become a grandmaster. Now you're working full time too. So. How's that shaping up? Uh, what's how? How are you going to attack this problem? Yeah, sure. I think um, you know the 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 goal sort of evolves, um, and what I mean by that is that the timeline, frankly, evolves. Uh, I think when I was uh, you know ten, I wanted to be a GM at fifteen, and then when I was fifteen, I I said eighteen, and eighteen I said twenty one, and you know out of college I was like, well, I'm probably going to start working, so let's say, you know, 26, 27. Um, I think I'll get there because um, the the passion and addiction, frankly, um, though it's relatively dormant, comes back in waves. Right. Um, well and, said. Uh, and basically the, the, the opportunities before me now lie um, in time off. So I've been working now for, you know, about a year and a half and uh, I've been playing too much chess, but believe it or not, every break I've taken off since I started working has been to play chess, which um, is, uh, is maybe a little bit sad, but it just it, it goes to show you how much I care. Um, I recognize now that, um, frankly, the ambition to become a GM isn't just about me. Um, it's something I hold very dear, but... I do sort of want to show that there are other ways to get this done. Um, if you have the, the fortitude and the drive and, um, and all those things, particularly as an African-American, um, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, Maurice Ashley is, you know, one guy, um, and there should be more, um, 
And uh, I, I think definitely my path, you know, sort of going it alone is, uh, is one, you know, that I, I just want to show as possible, uh, really. Um, I, I, I'm not looking at chess every single day anymore. Um, uh, there, there, it's mo- most days still like 90% of days, definitely. Like, so it's usually still, I'm looking at, you know, flicking through games or look, go, not chessgames.com has been a little bit replaced by chess bomb or, uh, or follow chess, this app I have on my phone. Um, but, uh, but just looking at the games are still there and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like a, a dream deferred. Yeah, I, I think, uh, again, a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, li- life gets in the way at times. Although I guess one one benefit of actually working now is if you could probably set aside enough money to get the occasional lesson. So having made it this far without a coach, do you have any thoughts of like reaching out to some GM on Skype and uh, having them help you uh, push for the next level? Um, honestly, no, I mean, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it's a, it's a tinge of stubbornness or something like that, but, um, I'm making adjustments on my own and they're working. Um, my last tournament was the, the, I only lost one game in a nine round event like with IMs and GMs. So, um, the stuff is working. It's the opportunities to play that still be, become, are the, are the persistent challenge. I think, you know, when I was younger, I had uh, I had a lot of time and and not not a lot of money and now the situation is reversed where I have the money to place at when I need when I want to but not enough time hmm. so um, you know the the aim is really to find some sort of happy equilibrium it might be uh, the next time I'm in between jobs or you know I really give myself like a year to really go at it um, but. Uh, I still I feel very confident about my ability to make adjustments and about my ceiling. Frankly, as a chess player, um, I've beaten uh, multiple twenty six fifty plus FIDE players, um, and uh, I think the thing that's actually been something that's been a challenge for me is actually my floor has probably been not the best. So I think the the really strong players or the people that get to jam, you know, their ceiling is one thing, but their floor is like is something that's not super low. My ceiling has always been super high. Like I've beaten 2670, 2680 uh, GMs uh, before. I've beaten a 2650 G. I've beaten some 2600s, a uh, FIDE players. Uh, but my floor, sometimes there's some games where I make, I make, make a string of moves that, you know, for my strength, I mean, if I make a, a few moves that are 2200 level, that's not going to cut it. So um, what do you think the psychological origin of uh, this issue is, of this inconsistency is? Um, so I don't know if it's psychological, but um, um, I will say, you know, from a philosophical perspective, I, I would say there are two types of chess players. There's um, the empirical chess player, the math science guy. That, that They're the people that, you know, they're like, oh, you play chess, you'd be great at finance or Oh, you'd be a great poker player. And then there's the the camp where I lie, which is the chess philosopher. And I would say the chess philosopher is someone that, you know, ideologically uh, believes certain things about the way the game should be played and plays that way all the time. And my philosophy as far as as a chess philosopher, my ideology is like uh, war of attrition, um, wear the opponent down over time. 
if uh, if they if an opponent creates a weakness here and then another weakness somewhere else, eventually the edifice will collapse over four, five, six hours. And in my drive to play that way, I think I sometimes eschew uh, uh, decisions that would uh, expedite a process or work in my favor. Or to put it in uh, maybe plainer English, sometimes I uh, will avoid sharp or tactical direction because I'm so um, bullish on my style. Right. That huh. is the challenge that, uh, that I'm constantly having to sort of recalibrate to ensure that, you know, that, you know, I don't totally discard um, tactical, uh, tactical play when it's required. So in terms of what you need to work on to get the GM title, do you feel like you need to emphasize tactics? Like, is it a tactical ability thing or more just the psychology of uh, not eschewing them in the moment? Yeah, I think it's the latter. It's just sort of understanding that, you know, there are certain forks in the road where there's the tactile choice is the better choice. And nine times out of 10, um, I, I, I avoid it because I w- would like to sort of chart calmer waters. <laughs> yeah. Well, sounds fixable at least. Yeah. It's, you, you be, you be, uh, you, you'd be surprised though. All the habits really die hard. Right. Well, uh, as far as bad habits go, it's not the worst one at least. Yeah, yeah. So what advice, Casa, as a self-taught, you know, super strong young player, what advice would you give to, like, the next generation if there's, like, a high school kid, you know, remind you of yourself who's maybe super into chess but doesn't have a lot of resources? Like, in this day and age, as opposed to, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you were in high school, 10, 10 years, but as we talked about before, thing, things have already changed in terms of resources. So how would you advise someone to approach uh, improving at chess these days? Yeah, I think it, um, I, I think it sort of depends where they are at in their process. So if they're, if they're not like an expert level player yet, um, I would say that, um, you know, this is sort of the last, uh, you know, the next Few gener- the next generation or so is probably the last generation where you're going to really see a lot of chess in public parks. Um, wow, that, uh, that would, just made me really sad. I, I think it's true. I, I think you know we've. I'm actually rereading Fahrenheit 451 right now. Just to just it, it's baffling to just see how much of society has you know sort of subverted towards walls and screens and. Uh, and lights and bright lights and and you know scattered brains and like we we just we're not really um, so we don't entertain the physical world enough and I think that's a trend that you definitely see I don't see like the older chess heads um, coming around into public parks to play so much fifty to hundred years from now but I would say in the interim there's still an opportunity where you can get a lot of free lessons just playing game after game after game in the park. And that was my opera. That was what my opportunity was, um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was coming up and not quite, you know, master yet. Um, so I would definitely say do that. Um, cause playing is an invaluable teacher. And do you think uh, it, do you think, sorry to cut you off, but just out of curiosity, do you think it has to be at the park or could they just grind out like a zillion blitz games online? 
Well, yeah, no, I actually think uh, they can grind out uh, Blitz games online to a point. So um, I was just saying, you know, getting that sort of physical experience with other people uh, can be really valuable too. Um, but yeah, so basically like playing in the parks or online can get you, you know, I, I would say to like expert or uh, maybe close to master. And, uh, and then beyond that, I would say just consuming uh, the free resources out there. Um, you know, chessgames.com was what worked for me. I mean, you can also, you know, uh, actually, uh, there are even free databases like uh, um, ChessDB or uh, you can look at games on ChessBomb. Um, uh, and so many of the, the top, uh, at these top tournaments now, uh, when they have these post-game analysis, analysis rooms where they actually make the players talk about their decision-making, it's like it's just free free resources basically from the cream of the, the cream of the crop. Um, I, I, for years and years and years, I've been looking at like Beal post game analysis with Daniel King and the two players, or uh, or you know candidates tournament post game analysis, or like you know some of it is is just you know sheepish commentary after a draw that like, you know they don't want to really be there. But a, a lot, many other times, they're really injecting their passion into the game. Um, and then, of course, there's probably uh, you know books um, that could be written. Book, I think books are still still have their place. Um, I think history, in particular, uh, is you know chess history can be valuable. Um, uh, it hasn't played as prominent a role in my development, but I would say definitely looking at you know the games of the you know, 70s, 80s, or whatever, there's like 30, I don't, I don't really believe, frankly, in looking at games like centuries ago, they don't really have much chess value uh, for your development, um, in my opinion, but um, if you're already around like expert, but if uh, you're, you know, in a place where you're, you're at export, I think these games from a few decades ago are great because you familiarize yourself with different structures and knowledge and, you know, old becomes new very quickly. So. And do you have a favorite player that you like historically uh, or currently? So I think it was there were different periods. So uh, uh, my my I think like my favorite player I, I would say because there were periods where I like this person and that person. Um, I'd say the person I liked the longest was Kramnik, hmm. and I could say without a doubt that he had the biggest influence on my chess. For so, sure. So what? <clears throat> What initially drew you to him? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the positional play um, was just pristine. And, you know, if you actually think about it, almost every opening um, in chess has advanced to the extent that it has because of Kramnik's work. Um, so if you, you think, you can just think about it, you think of the Petrov or, uh, or the Berlin Wall, those are the ones that people really know. But the yeah. Catalan, um, uh, you know, different uh, uh, lines in the Slav. Um, uh, I mean, he, he was a pioneer in so many different places where if you wanted something new or fresh, you looked at him. And the, and the other top guys looked at him. Um, and, uh, and then I think the other thing that I liked about him is he did have this, very much so this philosophy about the way that chess should be played and, and, these are sort of these micro advantages and pressing these advantages and that sort of thing. But he also had, he sort of was able to 
you know, beautifully complement it with uh, an empirical understanding that um, that you know I, I can only dream of uh, of possessing. Yeah, he he's incredible. Um, okay, and you mentioned that books aren't your aren't your favorite or like weren't the most formative for you, but do I think I managed to coax a book recommendation out of you last time, but I don't, I don't remember what it was. Do you have any? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, perfect your chess. Right. Uh, yeah. Which I think, I think Eugene Perlstein also recommended if I'm not mistaken, but anyway, go on. Yeah. Perfect your chess took me from 2100 to like perfect. Your chess was the book that made, that allowed me to cross into national master territory. Um, it sort of unlocked so many keys for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the matrix and you know, the, 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 there's the key maker in the second matrix. that's like opening up all these rooms. And basically that book opened up so many possibilities um, that I frankly wouldn't have looked at because my eyes weren't open. Hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, being a positional player, again, I would always eschew the avoid, not even really explore because sometimes I didn't know it was there, the tactical possibility. And the way the book is structured is there uh, basically a hundred puzzles in each section. And the thing I like about it is they're puzzles from real games in the early 21st century, all GM games. So, uh, or, or, you know, very strong title player games. And so these are real concrete decisions from real games. So they're not like made up puzzles. And, um, and, and basically, the first 40 in each section were FM level, the next 40 are IM level, and then the last 20 are GM level. And it's just, it was just so difficult to get through uh, the book um, and like get these correct. But you, know, you stare at enough positions um, where you're working out really relevant um, and realistic, frankly, positions that could happen on the board, and you're trying to figure out what should I do here? What's the course of action? Like, um, that is what really gets you into that game mode because it's, it, it's so close to the reality that it's, uh, it just, it's just great training. Most of the, most of these tactics books, you know, they're, if they're, you know, lower level at sack, sack mate, if they're not, um, they're just not, they're, they're not, they're not stuff where you just need to sit down and like get through them. And, I found with Perfecto Chess, like, you know, you look at a position for five to 10 minutes, you try to find out, and that sort of simulates the game uh, because that's what you have in the game. You have a clock that's against you. You're trying to work out a reasonable solution, and then you go forward. Yeah. One thing I've noticed with the tactics trainers online, I don't know if this is like a unique feeling to me, but when I try to solve them, I feel like more often than in a chess game, uh, I know what the move is and I'm just trying to figure out how it works or, you know, if not that the less severe version of that is, you know, it's a move order thing. You know, the theme, you just can't quite crack the move order and that's useful for building up pattern recognition. But to me, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't replicate the conditions of a game because in a game, of course, you don't know there's, you don't know that the tactic works. So at some point, if you, think there's something there or you have a slight intuition that there might be, but you're not finding it. Like you might need to move on. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I can definitely like echo those sentiments. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I seriously like perfect your chest. I would strongly encourage 
anyone to do it, to uh, check that out. Um, even if you don't, you're not at the, you know, expert level yet. You just you start to think about, you know, this is what real, you know, you know, when you're playing chess, you don't know that the tactic is there, you know, um, or or at least it's not like, it's not like when you're playing someone, there's like a light bulb in your head that says, oh, this is uh, white to play and win in three or something. Right. And so to really just work through real positions, you're not really even thinking about, you know, finding the tactic that wins. You're just thinking about making the best move. And that's what I liked about these positions too. Okay. Sounds good. Um, okay. So I have another question from a supporter of the podcast for you, Casa. Um, you have heard this one before, but we will ask it again uh, from Chip Moore. He says, I realize I don't have much hope of playing better chess, but can Casa give any advice on how to better understand games as you're watching or playing through them? I've heard masters pay attention to square spaces where lower rated players pay too much attention to pieces and any directions he can give to enjoy watching games being played would be appreciated. So, Sure. Um yeah, I, I think there's a few things. Um, one thing I emphasize um, with, with, I mean, I, I actually do uh, a few private lessons. Um, and what I emphasize, no matter the level, is, uh, is actually whenever you move a piece, you're moving it away from squares it was previously defending. So if you, if you let's say in the starting position, um, uh, white, uh, it's white to move, obviously, and white, it plays pawn e3. Well, uh, pushing that pawn from e2 to e3. Well, I would say that the adjacent squares uh, of e3, d3 and f3 are no longer protected and they're a little bit loose now. And I, within the, in the case of pawns, I also say that e2 square seems a little weak um, because it's no longer, pawns can't go backwards, so it can't be occupied again. And, um, and yeah, I always find that immensely valuable because the point is not that, uh, you might be able to exploit that, that, uh, that weakening or loosening of the square right away, but that, you know, over time, if you just keep yourself, yourself abreast of all of these developments, you're able to just sort of, uh, just do a quick check and see like, can I take advantage of that now? No. Okay. Let me look somewhere else. Can I take advantage of that now? No. Okay. Look somewhere else. And that sort of always has been something that really, really helped down the line because weak squares, you know, really can decide games. Now, if you want, if you want to sort of step back and not be so, um, cause that's really a, a very technical concept. One thing that I found, um, I actually did, uh, I was at the North Carolina state scholastic championships, um, a few months ago. And one thing that I found is I kept a tally during the weekend to see, uh, uh, the side that castles, the side that connects the rooks first, I had this theory, and I, I still believe it to be very much the case um, in, uh, in, in games, that a lot of times the side that connects the rook, rooks first is actually the side that wins the game. And so I kept a tally of these, of this, these scholastic players, you know, um, basically, uh, you know, for the most part, like 16, 1700 and below. And I, I want to say... 80% of the games were uh, the, the side that connected their rooks first won the game. And really, if you just extrapolate that, what does connecting the rooks actually mean? It means you developed your pieces and you castled um, so that the rooks are touching each other and, and the queen cleared itself from the back rank. So really what you're saying is you got all your pieces out and there's a semblance of coordination. And that's what, really what chess is 
uh, at a high level is, you know, making sure that everything is working in concert so that you have this, you know, wonderful, you know, orchestra or team or whatever analogy you want to put out there that works. Um, so connect those rooks. Nice. Yeah. As my friend Donnie Ariel, <clears throat> I am elect likes to say chess is a battle for territory. <laughs> N- mm-hmm. Never forget that that's what it's based on. Uh, and one other bit of advice for, for chip is in terms of if you're watching a game online and I know that it can be daunting, especially in a sense, especially with the engine right there in front of you. Um, but one thing you can do is if you're, if you're watching something and maybe you don't have the commentary on or maybe the commentary that you're watching you feel like is not really addressing the questions in your head, if someone made a move and you can't figure out why, one thing you can do is just with the engine, if you're watching on Chess24 or Follow Chess or wherever you're watching, just make like a nonsensical waiting move for the other side. Just like move king to h1 or pawn to a3 or whatever it is. Uh, and then the computer will then tell you what the next move is. So if you can't see what someone's threat is or what their plan is, that's one way that the engine can actually be a little bit of help um, in trying to navigate your way through what on earth is going on. Because I know when I watch Super GM games, I'm pretty lost myself. So, Yeah, that's a really great point uh, for um, for those that are working with the engine. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably... Um, I'm probably going to come off like a Luddite uh, just by saying this, but uh, I would say, you know, you really, uh, a chess player doesn't really need to um, to even work with the engine until uh, they're about, you know, class A player probably, um, with around 1800. Because um, I, I, I just think there's, you know, y- you need to build good habits um, as, a, as a chess player first before you determine what the best moves are um and those habits are are basically what is what's going to stick with you um uh, it's almost like uh you know someone that you know uh wants to you know be a great point guard or or whatever is gonna needs not a dribble first and they need to know what to dribble with uh, uh both hands and they need to be relatively uh ambidextrous and you're gonna you're gonna be able to want to you know cross over with your left. And then if you really want to be a serious player, you're going to want to cross over with your right um, and, and have that fluidity. And it's like, it's building these habits um, that, you know, first, because um, the computer is, is almost always going to uh, surprise you. Yeah, I get that. Maybe we can meet in the middle. What I would say is if, you know, if you spend a few minutes trying to figure it out for yourself, uh, maybe at that point, like, you know, using the engine to help you is kind of like looking at the answer of a textbook. Like, you know, maybe it's uh, not ideal, but on the other hand, if you're an adult chess fan, like, you know, yes, you'd like to get better at chess, but it's not, you know, maybe isn't your be all end all. Like at some point you just want to be able to feel like, you know, what's going on in the game. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Um, and, and, and just a, a word about, um, about engines generally, like I actually, um, I actually really enjoy watching uh, uh, engine games, engine matches. Oh, yeah. This um, was gold when you talked about it last time. Yeah. Talk about. I mean, yeah. Like, so, so basically, um, uh, you know, with, when we were playing human games, um, well, there's a few reasons why I like engine matches. The, the first reason is you, I like to see what openings they're playing um, because engines can make, um, you know, uh, dubious openings or bad openings playable. 
And so it's really interesting to see what plans uh, they and what course of action they take in certain openings that might not be so uh, popular, but actually prove to be fairly viable. Um, uh, it's also, uh, uh, and you actually see uh, sometimes the top players talk about this, like, oh, this opening was, you know, viable in this mat in this engine match or there was some idea here um uh you know g growing up uh, i i watched a few king's crusher videos on youtube where he'd analyze engine games and even though i was uh probably already a bit stronger than him um i just enjoyed his commentary it was just funny to sort of navigate these waters together as a, as a viewer a listener nice. um the, the, the second thing, and I would say is the, the thing that's even more important than learning about their opening habits is, uh, is actually the art of doing nothing. So in a lot of engine games, uh, there'll be moments where essentially the computers are like, they're, they're not going to offer draws um, the way humans do. So they might repeat moves in a really weird way for like 20 or 30 moves. And you're like, and you see these like 180 move games or 120 move games, and you're like, well, they just sort of shuffled the pieces for 30 moves. What was going on? And well, what was actually going on is the computers were able to move or make moves without compromising their position. And that's something as humans, we simply aren't able to do. We don't have, we just don't have the skill because we're human. We want to go forward. We want to, we want to, you know, stretch our wings, you know? Right. And so, I, you know, as a, you know, a player that's, you know, very positional and like slow developing games, it's immensely valuable to learn how to do something without ruining your position, how to, how to sort of pass the move, but be productive. Um, and, uh, it, I, it, it gets me every time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, as I said last time, I have to say this time, that's something that, um, Magnus in particular, he seems to have, he seems to have internalized uh, that lesson much more so than other players. I mean, he's so famous for, you know, just torturing people in these long end games, and he's just so incredible at squeaking out these minuscule advantages, uh, which um, dovetails into the one of a, only a couple more topics that I want to hit before uh, I let you you go, Casa. And thanks again for for your generosity with your time. Um, but you actually got to meet Magnus. So I, could you tell the story of uh, what happened there? Yeah. So um, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, 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 be connected to a lot of the, the players in the New York City chess scene just by virtue of being around it for so long. And um, Russell Makovsky, um, who uh, – uh, was uh, uh, at the time, I, I, I think there was, there was sort of like a splitting up of the company or something Something happened, but NYC Chess, which he was essentially running, and he may very well still be, uh, had Magnus Carlsen come in during the summertime and meet with some of their students and play you know, uh, some Blitz games and uh, really great theater. And I, and I wasn't a part of the uh, NYC Chess. I hadn't had a working relationship with it, like a professional or working relationship with them or anything. But uh, Russell was like, Hey, you want to come by and, you know, check this out? Like, obviously like you're, 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 I mean, you're a chess player. You're really, this is, this would be a great thing to do. And I was like, yeah, of course, no doubt. I get a chance to just, um, to just watch, um, just be around the guy. I mean, um, look at, at that time. I mean, I was like, you know, 
I was basically like a fangirl or a fanboy at some rock concert, you know, and, um, and, and with perspective, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't have that same, you know, fan, fanboy, fangirl, uh, thing about chess players. But, uh, that time I, I mean, I would have dropped anything. Uh, I would have literally dropped anything to run towards that. So anyways, I, I didn't actually, um, I wasn't there to actually play any games. So I actually watched uh, Irina Crush play a blitz game against Magnus because she was an instructor there. So they were giving some of the instructors an opportunity to play him. And she actually won the game. Uh, it was actually really cool. They played a five-minute blitz game. Uh, Irina played her uh, – oh, she's white and played a Nimzo Indian. I think she was a Queen C2 in, in Nimzo Indian player, a classical Nimzo Indian player. And I think she – and she won the game. It was very cool. Um, and then, uh, you know, he played a few other games and then, uh, left. Um, I, and, and I actually left, this was relatively early in the day. So I was meeting up with a friend from high school and we were going to walk the high line together. And we did. So I went, I walked the high line. Uh, it was about later in the day, probably like three, 4 PM now. And we got out the high line and sort of started walking towards union square, um, from like the meatpacking area. And, uh, you know, Union Square, there's uh, um, just a ton of uh, hustlers playing chess uh, with their board set up and everything. And I was like, oh, like, you know, just being a chess player, if you see chess and you see the clocks, like, it's like a, you know, it's like a, a, a wolf seeing <laughs> some sort of prey. Like, right. you're just going to move, gravitate there. Like, it's just hard to avoid. Um, and I was like, hey, uh, my friend Michael, I was like, hey, Michael, just Hey, you, you mind me if I play a few games? And he, he knew the the sort of the level of addiction in me that like, no, was not going to be like a <laughs> right. response. So um, he's like, sure, no problem. So I sit down, I start playing a few blitz games. Um, you know, I'm feeling good about myself, building up momentum. Um, totally ignore the fact I'm probably like hungry. And um, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Magnus and Russell uh, walk over to... Uh, uh, basically arrive at the uh, the chess tape uh, chess hustlers and uh, and we're all playing and people are playing blitz and Magnus wants to play and I'm like you've got to be kidding me I just saw this guy a few hours ago and now he's here like this time I'm getting in some games um, so I got to play three two minute games with him um, and he he beat me very comfortably uh, two of the three games and the third game I actually got the I, I got the better position but he he, he flagged me. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, at, I, I told my friend Michael that day, um, I told him, I said, here, take a picture, you know, and the picture to this day is like my, my the cover photo on Facebook. Um, but I, I on my Facebook, but I told him at the time, I was like, after that experience, I was like, Michael, this is one of the best days of my life. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, I think I, everyone would feel that way and I can certainly relate to the the fanboy thing. I mean, it's like watching him in like the Lee Chess Arena just beat up on all these other world class type bullet players. I mean, it's it's hard not to be in awe. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was. I was. Uh, I was like, oh man, like, if only I had the time to you know beat him, uh, show him what's up in basketball. Because <laughs> then he would add some problems. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> all right, uh, last topic, Casa. Before I let you out of here, so it's been. I think about 10 days since we recorded the first half of this interview. So now the U S championship is going on, although we're recording this Wednesday night. So it'll basically be over by the time, um, by the time this comes out, but any early impressions, have you got a chance to check it out at all? 
no, actually, I, I've 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 looked at a few rounds here and there, but I, I don't I couldn't even say who's leading. Embarrassingly enough, um, I will say I saw there were some games that you know sort of drew drew my attention. I was uh, of course impressed with the way Azoria played against Caruana. Um, he beat I mean, Nakamura today, as we record. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I have I'm actually not aware of. Uh, of these developments, but um, I, I, I can tell you this much: uh, um, this weekend, probably, I'll be uh, you know hitting that right arrow key on all those <laughs> chess bombs. So um, they, 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 it's it's uh, it's something I definitely will get to. Yeah, yeah. I always feel bad. I, I wish like I wish it were declared a holiday, you know. But now there's the tournaments come so fast and furious. There's so many awesome high level tournaments that I would just love to sit and watch, like you know Jen and Yasser or Peter Svidler and Jan like announce and just like uh, Kosta Kovutsky was saying how incredible Peter Lako was as an announcer. Um, like I would love to just like drink that in for hours at a time, but yeah, my, uh, and the funny thing is you can at some point, like even after the fact, I mean, you can, uh, I mean, chess is one of these things, right. Where it's like, hasn't totally like rippled into the public consciousness. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, people are telling you, what happened in the last round. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Avoid it, and then you could just watch the, these YouTube streams, which are amazing on the, like when you had do of the time. Um, so it, it, it really could, it's almost like, you know, you know, DVR or something. Yeah. Uh, evergreen content. Yeah. Um, actually I, I honestly, I, I really do want to get into, um, the, the, the sort of like live commentary at top tournaments, gig one day if someone gives me a shot yeah i think you'd honestly i think you'd be great at it i mean it's interesting because chess attracts introverts generally i think that uh chess players skew towards being introverted but i'm like i'm not just saying this as like you know someone who's had a lot of chess announcers on this podcast but i'm generally impressed with how well chess players are able to present their ideas because you know 25 years ago chess didn't have that reputation i mean there, there was so little coverage but even when something made its way to some sort of broadcast or tv i felt like ideas weren't explained very well and now there's just so many incredible announcers but i definitely i think you'd be great at it yeah thank you uh, you know you know the, the amazing thing about chess and i mean it, it just wakes me up you know like before this before, you know we were talking about having this this interview and um you know, I was feeling a little lethargic, a long day at work. Uh, and, and like, you know, we just get into talking about chess and I'm, I have all my sensibilities back. Like I'm just so alert because it's, it's just, it just gets you going in, in a way that, well, I'm, I'm looking for other things like that to get me going the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to replicate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Casa. This has been awesome. Um, once again, if you could uh, pass along the best way for people to either, you know, you've got a YouTube channel, so people should definitely check that out. Hopefully, as we mentioned last time, hopefully, if nothing, it, I think people understand you're, you know, you're working, you know, living and on the chess grind yourself. So if you don't put out actual content all the time, I, as I mentioned last time, I at least enjoy the little tournament updates that, that you put out and that John Bartholomew does and stuff like that. But anyway, long way of saying, what's the best way for people to reach you? 
Yeah, so um, definitely uh, check out the YouTube channel. There will be there. I, I do feel like I put a decent amount of content up there in the past year. I mean, I, I especially last year I had like seventy videos or something. So definitely a lot to pour over there. Um, I am going to be returning back to it um, very soon, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, also, I can be reached uh, via email. Uh, Casa Corley at gmail.com. So just my first and last name at Gmail. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, I'm, uh, I, I do do some private lessons from time to time. So feel free to hit me up. Um, but honestly, I mean, if you just want to have conversation too, that's, that's, uh, that's, I, I, I'm really, uh, I like to have those too. Um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say here, by the way, a thank you to Ben, because, um, I mean, I, I think what you're doing is really, really amazing and you're you sort of bring a, a credibility and um and just another angle uh to chess culture that um is really badly needed so um uh, keep keep putting putting uh putting out the good work uh you're putting out thanks man i appreciate it and i intend to i feel the same way as you i also am tired tonight but yeah once once you start kicking back and talking chess this is as, as i've uh, said before you know Having a podcast entails many responsibilities, a lot of which are not actually interviewing chess players, but the interviewing chess players is the part I love. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Cool. All right, well, thanks again, man, um, and uh, good luck chasing uh, norms and, you know, enjoying life. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it will definitely be uh, a, a long journey. Special thanks goes out to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. Without the generous support of the chess community, Perpetual Chess would not exist in its current form. I would like to thank Adam Vrancoulge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Bonastia, Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, Jen Shahadi, Jen Scream, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passy, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randall Temple, Ricky Grahava, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Tatia Vabrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tuchenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrancouz, Zhao Cheng, and last but not least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I'll catch you all next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.